already in the outpatient environment, we worry about exposure to just the flu virus. Hello, I'm Rachel Deere, host of today's program, COVID-19, Keeping Up with a Moving Target. This is the October 16th update of DKB Med Radio's Coronavirus Educational Series. Thank you for joining us. This activity is jointly provided by the Postgraduate Institute for Medicine, DKB Med, and the Institute for Johns Hopkins Nursing. Today's program is accredited for ANCC and AAPA credit, as well as AMA PRA Category 1 credits. Please visit our website for complete CE information. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. There, you will find all of our previous COVID-19 programs and have access to other free CE programs on a wide range of topics. The slides for today's webinar can be found in the resource list window. Today's learning objectives are, describe the impact of COVID-19 on blood and marrow stem cell transplant patients, name three strategies for keeping blood and marrow stem cell transplant patients safe during a pandemic, and discuss an algorithm for testing blood and marrow stem cell transplant recipients and donors. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Pfizer Incorporated and in-kind by DKB Med. All activity content and materials have been developed solely by the activity directors, planning committee members, and faculty presenters. With us today, we have Michaela Olson and Kathy Mooney from the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center at Johns Hopkins Hospital where Michaela is an oncology clinical nurse specialist and Kathy is a blood and marrow stem cell transplant clinical nurse specialist. They will be discussing how the COVID-19 pandemic has changed their bone marrow transplant procedures. Michaela and Kathy, thanks for your time. Hi everyone. Um, we are excited to be here today. I'm Michaela Olson. I'm an oncology clinical nurse specialist here at the Sydney Kimmel Comprehensive Cancer Center. And today I will be interviewing Kathy Mooney, who is our oncology clinical nurse specialist also in the Cancer Center who specializes in blood and marrow transplantation. And she's been working in that program for many years and educates the nurses and does a lot of patient education for our transplant patients. And today we're going to be talking about how we managed transplant during the COVID pandemic. It's a really important topic. And I hope that you will enjoy um, meeting Kathy and learning a little bit about how our transplant program uh, adapted during this period of time. So Kathy, I have a few questions for you. The first one is, I think it would be good for our audience if you described the Johns Hopkins bone marrow transplant program so that they understood a little bit about uh, what we do in our program and how we treat our patients. So our program has been around since uh, 1968 and it has steadily grown since that time. So we do allogeneic and autologous transplants here, including haplotransplants. And we use both myeloblative and non-myeloblative regimens. And we treat majority of heme malignancies. Uh, we also see some non-malignant heme disorders like sickle cell anemia or aplastic anemia. 
and we're currently working towards bridging that to the solid tumor world. So we see a lot of variety in our patients here. We do about 250 allogeneic transplants each year and about 100 autologous transplants, and that number continues to increase each year. And so our program is growing very steadily, um, which we'll talk about later is you know, how that impacts our space issues that we have to this day. And we do about 70% or a little more than 70% of our transplants as outpatients, uh, which also has some space limitations. We have a bone marrow transplant clinic here that we call IPOP, stands for inpatient outpatient. And the clinic was designed to treat bone marrow transplant patients as outpatients. So can we move this process from inpatient stays of you know, 60 to 100 days to the outpatient world and really give patients back some autonomy and allow them to live a more normal life while undergoing this process. And we found that that works. And so the majority of our patients are done now as outpatients. We continue to bring in patients who need to be admitted for certain chemo regimens due to scheduling or some of our older patients uh, we treat as inpatients in the initial period just to monitor them a little closely. So the IPOP clinic space is a small area up on our inpatient units that sees these patients daily. It has about 30 treatment spots and we see anywhere from 40 to 60 patients a day, depending on the volumes. And so one of the things we run out of kind of on a daily basis is space for these patients. So we do a lot of finagling with schedules to try to get the maximum amount of patients in this space each day so that we can see everybody on a daily basis. So the goal of the clinic is really to replace inpatient care in an outpatient environment. So we can do everything we do inpatient, but in a 12 hour period on the outside, unless you need some sort of a higher level of care like IMC or critical care, or you need some sort of infusion that you know, we can't replace in the home and in the clinic space. The clinic is very busy. Um, it runs 365 days a year, seven days a week. It's 12 hours a day. There's, there's really no off days for these patients or the staff. So it's a very busy clinic. We do transplant teaching. We do preparative regimens. We do the transplant itself and then uh, post-transplant monitoring um, on a daily basis for these patients. Our patients have to live within an hour of the clinic to be eligible for IPOP and they have to have a 24-hour caregiver. So if they live without outside of our kind of hour radius uh, in Baltimore traffic, which is not that far from actually our Baltimore campus, when you add in traffic, they have to come in and, and live locally. And so we have local housing kind of adjacent to the campus that they could stay at so that they can continue to be outpatients and, and come in every day. So when COVID hit, it's a unique situation, right? Because we we run a program that's primarily ambulatory and we believe that's the right thing to do because patients are not in the hospital where other sick patients are exposed to other infections and frankly they're safer in their own home environment and their quality of life is better. Now we have a situation where we have a pandemic. It was probably pretty frightening for you and, and other providers to think about suddenly how will we safely let these people leave the hospital at night? What are they going to experience in terms of exposure risk out in the community? And suddenly it felt like maybe they should be in the hospital and how do we keep you know, the, the goal of keeping them out of the hospital but protect them from getting COVID? So how did that feel just initially? It was definitely a concern. You know, These patients are severely neutropenic, um, as you said, and 
already in the outpatient environment, we worry about exposure to just the flu virus in, in, in respiratory season, right? So um, we're already kind of live in this world of we have to have this little bit of a bubble around these patients, which is why we're very strict with our one hour radius and our caregivers and our local housing and the way that we have them come in to and from the clinic and the way that we admit them from the clinic. So our patients, you know, they don't go through the emergency rooms. They have 24 hour access to our providers and to our inpatient care. So if they need a bed, there's already one waiting for them. So that helped a little bit to know that we already had these principles put into place to safely care for these patients without patients. Now, adding a pandemic where we weren't sure how contagious this virus was, who potentially had the virus as we learned more about asymptomatic carriers, that added another layer to it that we really had to think very thoughtfully about. So one of the things you know, that we changed was in terms of caregivers we used to allow patients to have multiple caregivers, right? We wanted it to be easy for the patients and their families to go through this process because having a 24-hour caregiver for months at a time is strenuous on a family. And so we used to say, you know, you could switch, swap out caregivers, right? As long as you had somebody 24 hours, we would work with you and allow you to kind of continue that process. But with COVID, we really wanted to limit that. So we really asked a lot of our patients and our families to say, as much as you can, have the same person. Mm -hmm. um, really have that one person or one to two people be your caregiver. And those people have to follow some very strict rules as well to maintain the safety of the patient. Right. Good. How did you prioritize bone marrow transplant as a treatment option for patients during the pandemic? We know that uh, surgery centers shut down. Many surgeries were delayed or stopped unless they were absolutely emergent. What about bone marrow transplant? How do you make those decisions? Bone marrow transplant is a, is a life-saving therapy, right? So especially in our acute leukemics who are, have a high rate of relapse. So we had to really think twice about, is this something we could delay? Is this something we could stop? What's in the best interest of the patient in terms of their transplant and also safety related to COVID? So we had a lot of discussion about it. Um, this, this was a high-level discussion with you know, the head of the transplant program and other physicians to really determine who we could safely treat and who we could safely delay. And so what we did was really kind of prioritize the patients in terms of who needed to continue in their transplant course and keep going, who could not stop and the part they were at this moment in time, who are we you know, worried about relapsing in, in the next month, in the next couple of weeks that they have to move forward. This is what we have to do at this point versus those patients who really did have some time. So things like you know, our sickle cell patients, they don't need a transplant tomorrow, they can wait a couple of months um, and then safely come back into our space and get that transplant. And so we really went patient by patient. Um, we looked at their disease, we looked at their treatment course and really determined, you know, who would be best to delay to, you know, the near future or down the road and who really needed to continue in order to both keep those people safe, but also to decompress our spaces and our clinics so that we were able to put in some social distancing measures and other other things like that, that as the hospital policies related to COVID changed. Right. And prioritizing transplants that are curative, mm -hmm. um, looking at, as you mentioned, looking at their disease status. We know that transplant works best in patients that have minimal disease. And so there's a window of opportunity for some patients. And so that I'm, I'm sure those were difficult and tricky decisions, but yeah, that's I, correct. Yeah. I feel like we did pretty well with that. 
what are the biggest concerns about the existing IPOP HIPOP clinic space? What were you most concerned about? We have a little kind of a boutique kind of clinic, um, and it really has served us well. But when a pandemic hits, what were your thoughts? So initially, it was you know the space. We 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 know before COVID that we were out of space. We've been out of space you know for years, but we make do and we figure out creative ways to kind of change scheduling and change the, the layout a little bit to really maximize the space. And, you know, there's talks, you know, always of, can we expand the space? Can we move the space? But, you know, at the time that COVID hit, that wasn't on the table. The ta you know, we had to make changes to our existing space and we had to do them fast. And so we looked at the treatment spots that we had in the clinic and we looked at ways that we could reduce the space between each treatment spot. Uh, Pre-COVID, there wasn't six feet between these treatment spots um, or between the nurses and the patients. So we really had to get creative. As we lowered our volumes in the transplant population and in, you know, the clinics also see some other hemalignancies in the clinic space as well. So as some of those research trials kind of slowed down, as some of that, that work slowed down, it also eased up some of the space issues. Um, but we had to end up, we removed four treatment spots from the clinic. Um, to make space. And so we were able to take some of those areas out for patients, and then we were able to create new spaces for the nurses to work um, in so that the nurses had their own space that they could work in. They were six feet apart, um, and the patients ended up being six feet apart. But it took some work with our infectious disease co-workers and the assistant nurse manager and IPOP to really walk the space multiple times to figure out exactly how they could reduce the, the burden on the, on the clinic. And then again, adjusting scheduling times to really minimize the amount of people in the clinic at one time. Right. We also, um, you know, we had to figure out where we could do some of this COVID testing, right? So we had patients who needed COVID testing. We had patients who needed just respiratory panels for flu season because we were still testing everybody for those pre-transplant. And typically we would just do that in the clinic didn't think twice about it. And as we learned more about safety for COVID testing, we really had to move that out of the clinic and where could that be done safely um, to not expose patients and not expose our staff and patients as well. So we'll talk about that in a later question, but I also uh, wanted to talk about how we addressed patient education to try to move that out of the space so that we, you know, the pre-transplant education and also uh, our transplant patients that were coming in for their post-transplant vaccinations, they were post-transplant, um, hopefully in remission and were really frightened about coming back to get their vaccines, but that's such a necessary part of their care plan. So I wanted to just talk about some creative things we did for that. So in terms of the patient and caregiver education, so uh, we do a lot of that in the clinic space. Um, we have multiple sessions with the patient and their caregiver to prepare them for the transplant. And so one of the early things we did was we have a welcome to BMT class where we do this twice a week. We bring in all the new BMT patients and their caregivers to a group class where we review transplant principles and kind of give a general overview of how the transplant process works here and, you know, what they're going to be doing while they're with us. It's a small class, but can become very packed when you have caregivers plus uh, other family members plus patients all in one, you know, small conference room. 
And so the first thing, you know, we had to do, unfortunately, was ask the caregivers not to come to that class. As the hospital kind of implemented some of these restrictions on visitors, this went in line with those policies. But it's hard to tell a caregiver, you know, you can't come to a teaching session or to a patient visit, especially in something like transplant. So we had to think of, you know, how can we still include the caregivers um, in this education and make sure they feel like they understand the process as well. So the first thing we did was just create a very simply a voiceover PowerPoint. We use a PowerPoint to teach the class. We recorded it being taught so that we could send that out in advance of the class so that the, both the caregiver and the patient could review together. And then they would be able to have their questions ready at the class time or send those in advance to their case managers. So that was one kind of simple thing we were able to do very quickly. And the turnaround time for that was, you know, minimal. And then we, the second thing we did was we moved the class into our larger auditorium that we have in the building so that we could ensure that there was proper social distancing in between all of the patients and the nurse who was educating them at the time. And we limited that class to only four patients at a time, again, to maximize social distancing and really prevent the spread of any illness. So that was kind of one of the first things we did. As we continued you know, down this course of, we still had a lot of teaching going on in the clinic in a very small space with a nurse and a, and a patient, we realized that we really needed to move some of this other stuff into a virtual environment. And that would benefit both the patient, the caregiver and the staff. And so you know, we're utilizing Zoom now um, and other platforms to allow the education to happen outside of the clinic and it allows the caregiver to become a participant again in the education uh, with, the, with their patient and the staff member. And that's been a, a very satisfying way to kind of bring everyone back together to the table. And so we, we're continuing to move our classes in that direction, uh, really to allow everyone to be at the table, you know, during those important teaching sessions. And you can probably cater to multiple caregivers in the future using this same platform. So do you think that you'll ever go back to the old way of teaching? You know, it doesn't seem like it. I think as we're utilizing more of this virtual education, this really, we're seeing the benefits of it aside from the space issues. You know, it does allow more than one participant. Um, it allows people to be comfortable in their environment and they're not anxious about being in the clinic and there's not a lot of distractions. So it's a very kind of dedicated time, dedicated space. On our perspective, you know, as far as scheduling these classes, it's opening up the schedule in a way that, you know, we didn't have the luxury of having when we were doing this in-person education. So it's allowing more sessions to occur during the week it's allowing us to kind of tailor the environment to teaching. So in our Welcome to DMT class, our goal is to separate that class uh, into allogeneic versus autologous. Right now it's a mixed class and it's based on other appointments and other scheduling needs. But if we're able to pull that out and not have it line up perfectly with the day they're already coming to the hospital to, you know, for their benefit, then we can really do two separate classes and really focus wholly on, you know, their type of transplant and not have to tell them, you know, listen to this, don't listen yeah. to this. So I think that's going to be the benefit that's going to be hard to replace uh, going back to in-person. Yeah. And how about, um, I'm sure you've had issues with trying to find translation for non-English speaking patients or fam or caregivers. And what has, have you seen as the benefit? I know we have a really robust interpreter service mm -hmm. here and we have a lot of new modalities. So how have you seen those benefit us during this time? 
Yeah, that's been a, a benefit that I don't think we anticipated um, because we do have a very vigorous service available to us. So when we need a translator, we have a translator available. But as you're trying to minimize the amount of people in a room or minimize the space between you, it becomes difficult when you add in another, another service, another person to that space. So one of the things that we struggled with was, okay, where can we do this teaching and have an interpreter at the bedside, which is the best way to do it. And so by moving these things to a platform that's online where we can all be in the room together um, has really kind of enhanced that opportunity and really made that a little bit easier to do and also to schedule. Yeah. So I know um, even for our new patient teaching in the infusion areas and our other ambulatory clinics, we are able to set up Zoom sessions with our oncologists, with the social worker, with the nursing, and the interpreter all in the Zoom session with the patient. And that's been really, really successful during this time. Most of our in-person translation services were um, put on hold for those reasons. And so using technology such as phoning an interpreter or doing video conferencing with, the, with an interpreter has really been great. And we've even used uh, sign language uh, virtual interpreters, which has been great. Yeah, it's gone very well. Yeah. Okay. So we have um, some more questions to address that we will talk about in our next session. This has been a really great prelude to a second set of questions. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kathy. And thank you, Michaela. If you're tuning into our webcast, please click the red claim credit button in the webinar console to attest for credit. Otherwise, please visit covid19.dkbmed.com. You'll receive your certificate immediately after. Any questions or issues, feel free to email us at the address listed. To submit questions, please send them to qa at dkbmed.com. That's Q is in question, A is in answer at dkbmed.com. Again, thanks for joining us and thank you for your dedication to your patients with COVID-19.